Everyone goes through difficult times in life. We just push through them. We do whatever we can to move forward. But what happens when you can't anymore? What happens when you have a breakdown? Or for some, a breakthrough? This is a very special episode today. Our guest today, Nick Motichka, has been through a lot. 23 years working in law enforcement. And for all those years, he was able to push the PTSD down, dark into a drawer, and hope that it would just be fine. Until it wasn't. And then he had his breakthrough. This is an amazing story of true redemption and working yourself through some of the most difficult times in your life. Today, Nick is the founder of Flow State Designs, an incredible apparel and clothing company. And as a special gift to all of our listeners today, Nick's company is giving a 20% discount to all the listeners of the MindFit Method podcast. So if you go to flowstatedesigns.ca and choose an amazing hemp fiber t-shirt, just enter MindFit20 in the coupon code and you'll get 20% off. You'll be supporting a family business as well as receiving an incredible t-shirt. So friends, are you ready? Three, two, one, let's go. Hey everyone, what's going on? I'm Mike Fancher and welcome to this episode of the MindFit Method Podcast. And today is a day that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. Today, I have Nick Motichka with me. Nick has an unbelievable story, both from his past and from where he is today. And I think you guys are just going to be amazed. This is one of those things where I really want you to sit back and take this all in because there's so much to learn here about growth, honestly, about trauma and being able to move past and really push yourself to limits that you didn't even know you had. So Nick, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Great. No, I'm happy to be here and excited to dig in. Awesome. Well, Nick, just to start, I know that you spent, uh, I believe, 23 years working in law enforcement. And before we go too far into the discussion, I just want to say thank you because I understand it is a thankless job. It is a difficult job, especially in the world that we live in today, maybe more thankless than ever. But I truly appreciate your service. So thank you so much for everything that you've done. Well, thank you for saying that. And I, I really feel that from you and, and definitely appreciate your kind words. So thank you. Well, I, I come from a family with family members in law enforcement. And as you know, you and I were just talking before we started recording, but it was my dream uh, to go that route, a dream that was not fulfilled due to a variety of circumstances. But if those circumstances hadn't occurred, you and I wouldn't be talking today. So, you know, I'm excited. Let me ask, because you you do have such a journey. Can you share a little bit of how did we get here? How did you go from being a law enforcement officer to becoming the founder of Flow State Designs? Yeah, it's been an interesting few years, let me tell you that. But yeah, I'll just, I'll go back to kind of the beginning and how I even got into law enforcement and then that'll kind of tie everything together. Perfect. So I grew up in a household quite like yourself with a, with a father who was a police officer. So my dad was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here in Canada. So he was a Mountie, the the Red Surge and, and all of that, the stereotypical image that I think is still quite prevalent in the world. So that was that was my upbringing. So I was I was in it right right from day one. And so I there's pictures of me, you know, riding the the little push bike with wearing a forge cap and a clip on tie and a diaper and like that's it. And so it started quite young for me. And, and then just, you know, the subconscious things too, that come with it. And that's the importance of a pension and the stable income and the benefits and all of that. And so that was all very for in my formative years, a very important thing. Neither of my parents were, had any sort of entrepreneurial ventures or anything like that. And so when I got to end of high school, time to decide on a career. It was, I originally was actually quite interested in design and specifically cars and motorcycles and that sort of thing. As a teenager, that was my jam, drawing cars and drawing motorcycles and coming up with what I thought was cool stuff. And I just didn't have the grades to support that going forward into technical kind of drafting and engineering and that sort of thing. And so 
my that was my original dream and that was sort of dashed at a around grade 11 grade 12 and then it was like okay well i guess policing is it and then i just went all in and there was numerous things that appealed to me about it and number one it was the chance to go and actually help people and to be that person that was there in people's moment of need and so that was a huge driving factor and then obviously the parts I talked about, the importance of the pension and all the things like that as well was subconscious. And then I also liked adrenaline. And so driving fast and doing exciting things and being involved in chaos was appealing to me. And so I, as a 19-year-old fresh out of high school, I started working in enforcement-related jobs. And so was a security guard at a mall, fresh face, 19 year old. It's hilarious. Look at my photos now. I was literally a kid and then moved into some different jobs and then worked my way through college getting, and I ended up with a degree in justice studies and learned all about the importance of people's rights and all of the sociological explanations for deviant behavior and psychological explanations and all that. It was fascinating to me. And I went from barely graduating from high school because my marks weren't very good to I ended up on the dean's honor roll for my four-year cumulative GPA. And it was like, because I finally applied myself. And so that was a huge, a huge lesson for me because I always just thought I wasn't that smart, but just turns out I wasn't trying. Um, So that was interesting for me to go through and then got out into the real world and um, started applying to police forces and went through, you know, application processes with a few different agencies and got deferred for some things that just immaturity and whatnot and things that should have, you know, prevented me from being a police officer at a a young age. And then got into the RCMP. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police as I turned, I was 25 when I started at Depot, it's called, was living my dream. And I thought this is going to be amazing. And so got to training and thought training is going to be awesome. I'm going to love this. I'm going to kick butt. It's going to be great. And I got there and it was not what I expected. And it was, it's very paramilitary. It's living in a dorm with, you know, it's a 32 man dorm and it's, there's just a board between you and the next guy called a snore board. And so you can imagine the the smells and the sounds coming out of a, a room like that. And just being there and like, I mean, you're, you're in Regina, Saskatchewan. So I was, you know, a flight away from home. So didn't know anyone. And so it was, you were in it for six months. And so didn't really enjoy it, but did well and got posted to a preferable spot, which was just outside of Edmonton, Alberta in a town called Sherwood Park. So as a young guy, it was quite desirable being close to a big city. It's funny, actually, because I asked for small with a reserve and the RCMP, like the mind games they play. So I asked for that and they gave me big municipal place close to a city. (laughs) And the guys in my troop and girls in my troop that asked for the cushy spots close to big centers, they went to the small places with the reserve. So it's interesting how the mind games started <laughs> right at the beginning. So got out and immediately wasn't what I expected. It And no one can ever adequately prepare you for what you're going to see and do and the energy of the encounters you're going to have with people. But it definitely wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. And I think for me, the biggest the biggest thing that I immediately noticed was the level of deception from people was really disheartening. So it's from the little old lady at the traffic stop. She will lie to protect herself, which is human nature. And I'm not faulting anyone, but it's just, that's what you're dealing with as a police officer. So you're sorting through people's lies all day and trying to figure out where in the middle the truth might be. And so, and that goes from that traffic stop to the domestic situation where the, the person that, you know, the bad guy, the, the guy in most cases, he's lying to you, right? Of course, because he's trying to protect himself. And then in a lot of cases, the person that calls you is minimizing maybe their involvement in it. And so you're getting lies on both sides. And so you're trying to sort through that. And I, I didn't have any conscious awareness of it, but it's not my jam. I don't do well with deception. <laughs> and that, it just wasn't, yeah, it just didn't feel this sounds weird, but it just didn't feel good. And it, I mean, yeah, what would I, what did I think I was going to get into? Right. Like everyone was going to be happy to see me in positive energy all day. Like it was just a little, it was super naive of me to, to think that that was going to be any different. 
but I pushed through, you know, I signed up. I'm like, no, I'm doing this. Like I signed on the dotted line. I'm, I'm in it for 25 years. And so I found a, so you start out in street level policing, right? Like going from call to call, frontline policing, general duty that has all sorts of different names. And so what you're being asked to be jack of all trades and you're master of none. And so you're being asked to go put out the fires at the hot calls. And then you're also an investigator. And in my opinion, you can't do either of those effectively while you're doing the other, right? You can Mm -hmm. either be a good first responder or you can be a good investigator. You can't do both at the same time because you're having to interview suspects and take lots of time to write search warrants and all this stuff. And like in the meantime, you're now you're ignoring the radio and all the the new stuff coming in. And so you're being pulled in a million directions. And I, I didn't enjoy that. So quite quickly into my career, I found I moved into more investigative roles and I definitely enjoyed that more. And so started out, yeah, crime reduction unit and some bigger kind of property related files and then moved into drug work uh, right away. And I really enjoyed the drug side of things because we could really sink our teeth into an investigation at a time. and. We were at the, this point, it was kind of like 2007 and it was the very beginning of the opiate epidemic. The opiate crisis really hit the town that we were in around that time. And so I had a front row seat for it. And it was, it was really, really sad to see these kids go from these well-to-do suburb, you know, families to just the, the gutter, literally. Uh, it was, it was really, really sad. And then just to to see the role that Big Pharma played in that and doctors and it was a hard time for sure. Um, and so I was working in a drug unit and then I met my now wife and the mother of my three amazing kids. And so I had to start thinking about her career. And she suggested to me, why don't you quit the RCMP and join Calgary Police? And I thought, well, that's not a very good idea. But like so many times in our relationship, she'll say something and then it'll be like, It'll take me a minute to wrap my head around it. And then I'll come back in a day or two or a week and be like, okay, well, that was actually a good idea. Let's talk about this more. So that was exactly the situation. And so I ended up, yeah, a few months later, I started with Calgary Police and moved from Edmonton area and then to Calgary. And so it's a city of about one point, probably around 1.2 million, I would say at that point. So bigger center. And I was thrown right into downtown Calgary policing. And so dealing with homeless shelters and all of the things that are happening in any big city in Canada or the U.S. around this time. Was doing more of the first responder role and then transitioned into more of an investigative role after two years. And I moved into another drug unit, but this time it was actually undercover drug work. And so it was drug investigations, but I was also an undercover operator. So I was growing the beard and, you know, trying to trick people into selling me drugs is basically what my job was, which is ironic. So I mentioned the deception at the beginning um, (laughs) and how I didn't enjoy the deception. And now I am the deception. Like that is my job is to trick people and lie and sneak around and do all these covert things. And so needless to say, I, I didn't enjoy the operating part of that role. It was a challenge and I'm kind of uh, the type that that really enjoys a challenge and right. likes to push myself. And so this role pushed me far outside my comfort zone. And it's something that actually definitely benefits me t- to this day is I am very comfortable being uncomfortable because I've put myself in so many uncomfortable situations over my career. Because it's never, it's never like, you're never thinking, oh, this is going to be a great encounter to go walk up to this guy and tell him that he's under arrest. Like it's always uncomfortable and you're always doing things that are really pushing you. And so that definitely appealed to me. But that undercover role, it served its purpose and I found lots of good experience and learned a lot of things and then transitioned from that into a gang suppression role. And so what that looked like was is a lot of working in bars, basically looking for gang members. And then what we would do is, so in Alberta, there's actually a law that prevents people that are proven and known to be members of organized crime from being in licensed premises. And the idea is that when the gang member is not in the bar, then everyone else in that bar is now safer because the realities of their world are if they're 
anywhere and rival gang members sees them, there's going to be violence. Like that's just the way that their world works. And so now everyone else in that crowded bar is in harm's way because there's going to be bullets flying. There's going to be all sorts of crazy things happening. So if they're not, when we remove them from that bar, then everyone else is safer. So that role I had found a lot of benefit in because I actually felt like I was helping people. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that we were preventing several murders a year for sure. And then just to back up a little bit with doing the drug work prior to that, I spent a lot of time in court and testifying and being on the stand and involved in some bigger investigations and just saw the system from the inside and how broken it is specifically here in Canada. And so that was really disheartening. So disheartening, obviously the dealing with people face to face and the deception and the energy of your encounters with people. And then you're getting beat down from the internal stuff, like with the court system. And then obviously the internal politics and everything just kind of piles on you. And that's why cops get bitter at, after several years of working, they have that kind of chip on their shoulder. And I'll just kind of describe my interpretation of that, you know, that energy you get from that police officer when you get pulled over. So he's pulled over, you know, how many thousands of cars in his career? It's very rare that someone's happy to see you at a traffic stop. <laughs> and so when you've been met with bad energy over thousands of encounters, you as a human, you're an officer, but you're also a human, you now put on that protective shield a little bit. So when you walk up to that window, you already have your shield up. And then that's what the person at the window, so that's what you're feeling. And then you're mad because you're probably getting a ticket. And so you're giving it back. And then it's just this negative loop of just, just bad. And so anyways, yeah. that's a little side note, but that's my opinion on why cops are <laughs> not very nice to you at your windows. And I'm not giving them like an excuse or anything because yeah, it's just a, it's, you make that yourself. When you approach with that energy, you're already written the situation. It's going to be negative. And it's amazing for myself. I would always come up with a bit of a smile and give people a break and give them the cheaper of the two infractions or whatever, and try and leave a positive taste in their mouth as best I could. 90, whatever, like 95 plus percent of the population, their only interaction with the police is in a traffic infraction. And so right. if a police officer can come up and leave a bit of a positive taste, like that's going to go a long way. And I think that gets lost on a lot of guys and girls in law enforcement. And it's just over time, right? You just get kind of beaten down, but, um, no excuses. Uh, we could definitely do better for sure. Um, so I'm trying to be the be the change that I want to see in the world. So there if anyone's go. listening, be nicer there on traffic stops. So um, now that you, so as I can totally see the where you're saying of how almost like a buildup, you said of a shield just comes time after time after time. Tell me more about that and how that was beginning to weigh on you. Yeah, for sure. And so that shield is is coming in in everyday interactions with the public. Um but it's also it's happening internally. And so we're I'm going to, you know, variety of different things, traumatic incidences, going to bad car crashes, going to murders at times, suicides, domestic violence, just like really hard things to witness. Um and at the end of the day and I'll say it again is like we're human, right? Like we wear this fancy uniform and all the things, but there's still a human on the inside of that. And there's just, there's not a lot of space or time to actually process the traumas that you're being exposed to. And so my coping strategy, not knowing any better was just to push things down and keep things inside. And so there's, and it's definitely trending in the right direction. I will say in terms of like debriefs and stuff after major calls, it's, they're just so busy. Police, policing has gotten to the point where it's just like, you're just running around putting out fires. And so there's no time for that debrief or to process a hard call. It's just like onto the next one. And so over the years, it just, it piles up and it, it takes a toll on you. And for me, I, I wasn't again, consciously aware of it, but it was affecting me in my mood and the way I was showing up in the world, the, my patience level I had with my kids, the person I was being, uh, in with my wife. And it was just really starting to affect me in, in all areas of my life. And then 
where I really started to see it and first actually took a step to, to address it was with my sleep. So I was working in gang suppression at this point. And so I did a little over four years in that unit. And it was a heavy night shift unit, of course, because we were doing a lot of bar stuff. So we'd work four 12-hour night shifts in a row and then three shorter day shifts and then back to four night shifts in a row. And so by the end of my time in, in GST, it was called, we, I would be only getting two or three hours of sleep between my night shifts. And so over the course of four, I was just, I was a mess by the end. I was no good at work, no good at home. I would finish my last night shift and it would take me a couple of days to even feel normal again. Like you just have this like almost hangover feeling and it's, they talk about shift work, having, taking years off your life. But I was at a point where I was literally feeling it killing me. And so for the first time in my life, I admitted that something wasn't right with me. And I went to my family doctor first and got a note, a doctor's note restricting my hours basically to midnight. And so in policing, you can imagine that's a little bit career limiting. And so I, but I was, I was feeling bad enough that I was willing to just see what happened and let go of my control on the outcome. And so I put that note in and just sort of let go of the wheel. And um, I'll just, I'll back up just a smidge because that happened right at the same time. It was early in 2020. So January of 2020, uh, my wife and I started meditating daily and we did a gut reset starting January 1. So it was a 30 day gut reset. So those factors, all of a sudden, like my life's went on a totally different trajectory now with some, some hindsight, I can really see it. And then that's when that, the sleep thing where I finally admitted that something was up with me. So put that note in and then I got placed in this unit called the public affairs and media relations unit with the Calgary police service. So I was like the Twitter cop for the service. So answering social media stuff. And then now we're into that spring, May of 2020. So we all know what was going on in the world at that point with lockdowns and just the craziness of everything that was going on. And so I was working from home actually on a laptop Tuesday to Friday. First time in my career, I wasn't working night shifts, wasn't in uniform, wasn't having to deal with the public directly. I thought, this is great. Like I'm living the dream here. I'm 17 years or sorry, I was 15 years into my policing career at this point. So I had 10 years left. I'm like, I can coast through 10 years. No problem. And then George Floyd was murdered in the U.S. in late June of 2020. And then that changed my little online cushy gig into like the worst place. So I, looking back now, like I would have rather been in a bar dealing with the worst gang member that the city I was working in had to offer or still working undercover buying an ounce of meth from this drug dealer in a back alley. I would have preferred the energy of that over what I was feeling as the the Twitter cop during that summer, just with all the defund the police stuff. And then internally in Calgary, there was a lot of like politics with the, the police commission and some things that they were saying. It was just, it was a really dark time. And then at my core, I'm still like a little bit that naive kid in the sense where I'm like, I started doing this job to help people. And like, it's just being so lost in the chaos of what was happening in the world at that point. So it was dark. I pushed through that summer, but I I felt the darkness, but I wasn't, I didn't have any conscious real awareness of it. And then, and then my cup filled up. Like I told you about how I'd pushed down all my traumas throughout my entire career. And so anytime I'd be reminded of them, I would just, I'd have this quick, thought to be like, no, no, not dealing with that one today. And I would just push it back down, right? Just with physical force. And that had served me for 15 years up until this point. And then September 16th of 2020, I opened my laptop and there were some messages that had come in overnight from a young lady who was suicidal. And my world just came crashing in on me. And I had a full on it was a breakthrough is what it was. It looked and felt like a breakdown in the moment, but it was, I wasn't going to get the help I needed unless I had a full slap across the face. I needed that in order to push me to get the help that I needed because obviously I wasn't going to do it otherwise, right? I was just going to push through and 
not address anything. And so that moment, it was hard. But looking back now with a little bit of hindsight, it was exactly what needed to happen. And the best thing that's happened to me outside of meeting my wife and kids and all those big things. But it was it was huge in in steering me in the direction where I've headed today and where I'm at now. Really, as I was listening to your story, I mean, a lot of times people don't want to come right out and say, I know I was facing PTSD. However, it sounds very much and you're nodding your head. So I'm thinking you agree that, you know, it was, it wasn't just a post-traumatic stress syndrome from an event. It was from years of events on a daily basis that you said your cup overflowed, how your cup was even, how your reservoir was even big enough to be able to hold that for that many years is incredible. And I know you kind of said that you've, you've experienced really a, like almost a profound healing journey after going through your PTSD. Was there a specific pivotal moment outside of the, those messages that began to, cat, to catalyze your transformation? So I understand what led to the point, but after you had that day, what was the catalyst that said, I can't and I have to? Because those are two things that, they sound like they're two things that don't go together, but I think they very much are. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so going back to January of, of 2020 and going down, starting down the spiritual awakening journey, whatever you want to call it, I think was, there's no coincidence in the timeline of that where that happened, you know, early January. And then I admit my sleep is all messed up. And then nine months later, I have a full breakthrough at work and was forced to start to deal with the stuff that I wasn't going to deal with otherwise. And so I think it's, I think it's my, my spiritual like connection was really strengthening at that point. And then I was starting to, yeah, bring that into my consciousness and like, and then starting to live it. And so what, what happened after September 16th was I vowed on that day that I wasn't going to go back in, to work until I had dealt with all my shit. And so I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I was just like, just committed to myself to do that. And so I was doing all the traditional therapies and they, you know, psychologists and occupational therapists and all the things that they were offering me, but there was no spiritual component. There was no energetic component. It was all really dealing with the body as like a machine. And I just, I was really missing that, like the energetic component of it. And so I was doing all the traditional stuff and was all in on them because I didn't have any options. Like I didn't know what else to do at that point. Um, but it, after a year, it was a little bit over a year and a half or close to a year and a half of those traditional therapies. And I still, I, I was actually worse than the day I went off of work in terms of the way it was affecting me in my day-to-day -day life, the, the unresolved trauma. And so that again was, you know, mood was just terrible. My patience, I couldn't deal with any sort of adversity in my life. Like if even decisions I found just making simple day-to-day -day decisions were just like torture for me and just felt really awful. I lost like 30 pounds. I went, I'm like six, three, and I always kind of hover around 195. I went down to like 165. I was just a shell of myself, both physically and just in every way I was showing up. And so, and then, yeah, my sleep was all messed up and I just wasn't the person that I knew I could be. And so after struggling with traditional therapies and not getting back to myself, I just, I had this intuitive knowing that there was something in plant medicine for me along for my healing. And I, I didn't know what that was going to look like exactly. So I just, I, at this point, I'm just trusting my gut. And so I had this intuitive knowing that mushrooms were going to be a thing for me and psilocybin, I mean, magic mushrooms. And so I just like any good drug cop would do, I just decided to grow my own mushrooms. So that's what I did. And then again, not knowing exactly what I was going to do with them, but knowing that they were, they played a role. And so 
I grew them on a sacred geometry clearing plate and I was doing like Reiki on them regularly, sending them intention and positive energies. And then in December of 2021, I was at like my ultimate low. I'd been through this return to work program that WCB put me in. And it was a three, three month program where I had four appointments a week with an OT and a psychologist. And they were just pushing me hard to return to work. Like the name of the program is return to work. So that was obviously what they were trying to do. And it just, I felt that in every appointment and they just weren't considering the fact that it wasn't, I hadn't processed anything. Like I'd regurgitated my stories, my traumas, all the things like a hundred times at that point, but it was still going through the filters of my mind. So it was like a top down approach. So was still going through all the stories I've told myself and all the filters and all the beliefs and programming and all the things that I'd built up in my head in order to access these traumas. And so at the end of that, I was just, I was, I was at rock bottom basically in terms of on my healing journey. And so I, I had an intuitive knowing in December of 2021 that I needed a shaman who is also a psychologist. And so, uh, about two months prior, three months prior, my, my Oracle, my wife, she told me, you know what? You need a shaman who's a psychologist. And then I was like, I don't know. What does that even mean? And then, so I convinced myself that I came up with the idea two months later. So in that, in that moment, I'm like, okay, I need a shaman who's a psychologist. So I Googled it and I found one and she happened to be in Calgary. And so I called her up and a little bit of back and forth, but we ended up arranging a healing journey for early 2022 now. So she was a, is a PhD psychologist as well as a shaman. So she did all the standardized diagnosis stuff on me. And I came back as PTSD and on the severe side. So diagnosed PTSD. And so January 28th of 2022, holy smokes. Yeah. 2022. We had a healing journey and it was so shaman led, like legit ceremony with all the, all that energetic stuff that I talked about that was missing in my traditional therapies was like now front and center. Like there's drumming and calling in of protection from these different energetic bodies. And it was just, it was wild and exactly what I needed. So I'd grown these mushrooms with the intention to heal myself. So I brought them with me and I held them to my heart and I read, so I'd written out my intention for that journey in my journal. And so I read that intention and that was to go in and actually process unresolved trauma that was affecting me in my day-to-day life. So with that medicine, and I say medicine very intentionally because it is medicine, it has the potential to help so many people outside of law enforcement as well. Trauma and unresolved trauma is at the root of so many problems in people's lives, health concerns, all sorts of things. Root cause is unresolved trauma. So these, this plant, this medicine has, yeah, so much potential. So I held this medicine to my heart, read my intention three times forcefully, and then I consumed it and just again, let go of my control and my preconceived all the things that I'd been told throughout my career that, you know, drugs are bad and this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs and like all the things I just completely let go of it and just trusted that I was doing what I needed to do to heal myself. And I was just at a point where I was trusting my intuition. So to back up, I, throughout my career, like working undercover and in these different units, I was ignoring my intuition as a profession, your intuition is never saying like, yeah, get into that drug dealer's car. Like this is going to be awesome. Like that your intuition is screaming at you. Like, don't been there. That seems super dangerous. Don't do it. But then you're like, shut up intuition. I need to do my job. And then that's what you do. And so I'd spent so many years ignoring my intuition that it was really a journey to start trusting it again and to not only hear it, but then to take steps in my physical real life to show that I was listening. And that for me was the growing of these mushrooms and then getting to that healing journey on January 28th was just like a complete, just like, okay, I trust, I trust whatever's happening here. 
can't explain it, but I'm going for it. So I, yeah, consumed these, this medicine. And then I went in when I started feeling the effects of it. I went into the bedroom of the place that we were staying in and I went right under the covers, which is interesting too, because there's actually, there's a lot of science that talks about with psilocybin and with psychedelics that blocking out your visual inputs is actually an important part. So I just did that again, intuitively. And what it did, so it alters your state of consciousness. So it allowed me to go back willingly to all of those hard calls that I was formerly just pushing down, right? So I went back chronologically to my first hard call that I'd never, would never let myself go back to. And it went way back to early, early days in my RCMP career. And it was a suicide. And I went back there without any forcing or anything, just like, just natural. And I was able to see it from a different perspective. And that was that I was just a witness to someone else's trauma. And so in this case, it was a suicide. And so me holding on to this 15 years later was not helping the person involved in the call. And it certainly wasn't helping me. And I just had this awareness like, oh man, I was just a witness to someone else's trauma. And then the second and more important part is I had what I can only now describe as radical Jesus level compassion for the person involved in what their trauma story and what their life must have looked like to get them to that point to want to end their own life. And then I also had that overwhelming sense of compassion for myself in that I started doing this job to try and help people. And so with that, you know, that high vibrational compassion, because compassion is like the highest vibration there is. And then that perspective change, realizing that me holding on to this trauma 15 years later is only hurting and that I was just a witness. It just processed. It finally just moved through me and out of me. And then I just went then chronologically to the next one and worked through that same process and worked through my whole career of those hard calls. I had about five that were like kind of the ones that were the real sticky ones. Yeah. And so I worked through all five of them and I came out and it's, it had taken so many years and you touched on it, but taken so long to get to that point that it wasn't like a switch was flipped and I was like, I'm good. Like I'm back right. to myself. Like it took some time, some integration, some sessions with my therapist and some different things. but. Like pretty much about a week later after that session, like I was feeling different and things I could feel like something was going on with me and, and on the positive sense. And then, so no coincidences, like, cause there's no such thing as a coincidence. What my healing journey happened on January 28th. And that was my wife's, my wife and I's 10 year wedding anniversary. And then also that was when the freedom convoy in Canada was on their way, the trucker convoy was on their way across Canada to Ottawa to protest the government overreach and the mandates and all the mm -hmm. silliness that was happening in Canada at that point. And so I, as someone who truly respects people's rights and they're like, you know, in the, in the Canada, it's called the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's your guys' constitution. I like, that's like, that's the law of the land and you don't mess with people's rights. And we were having our rights messed with us big time in Canada. And so I was having like, I was feeling hope, immense hope for the future, seeing that convoy happen. And that was happening right at the moment of my healing journey. So no coincidence, but that was happening at the same time. So about a week later, that positivity of that convoy had really shifted and the government was starting to try and like quash this uprising that was happening. And so what I saw from my fellow law enforcement officers was them going in. So it's February, it's miserable, cold Canadian winter, like minus, I don't even know, but right. That. And the police are going in and they're stealing fuel from the truckers to like get them to move along. And in the meantime, the government's completely ignoring, like they're not talking about any of this. And like, they're not talking to the organizers. They're not doing any of that. They're just trying to get rid of these people. And so they're stealing the police. So now my profession is stealing fuel. And it just like, oh, it hurt my heart so bad to see that. And just to realize that 
yeah, these are peaceful protesters and we're trampling their rights. And so I recorded a video that night talking to my fellow officers, just being like, let's think about what we're doing here in terms of this and like our oaths and our allegiances and all the, you know, the things that we have to swear to when we join this job. It's not, we're not swearing an allegiance to a government. We're swearing an allegiance and like an oath to the charter and like to protect people's rights. So I made this video. And so that was a week after my healing journey. And so I was starting to feel better for sure. And then, so fast forward about a month after that, WCB had ordered a comprehensive psych assessment. So they didn't know what I had done, like in terms of the healing journey, I had to pay for it myself and organize it and all that. Cause it's still a psilocybin is a schedule one drug, both in Canada and the United States, which means that it has a high likelihood of addiction and it has no therapeutic or medical benefit, which is just wrong. Like this just wrong on both, both accounts. Like that's, that's a lie. So, um, it's still a controlled substance. So like to go through like an exemption process or something with the government would have, like, I'd still be waiting for that to this day. And who knows where I'd be at in my trauma story if I wouldn't have dealt with my stuff when I did. So I just, yeah, pushed forward and and did what I did. But so I had this comprehensive psych assessment. So six, about six weeks after my healing journey, And it was with an independent psychologist. And so she called me back about a week after and let me know that I didn't even meet the criteria for a diagnosis anymore. So I went from severe diagnosed PTSD, one healing journey, and then I don't meet the criteria for a diagnosis anymore. So the evidence is pretty clear. Wow. Wow. There's so much to unpack in that story. First is that as you were talking and you were talking about during that healing journey and utilizing the psychedelics and the mushrooms through that process, it almost as though allowed, it acted like a can opener in a way. It allowed you to strip away one layer of shield at a time. And I'm imagining the mental callus that your brain had to have. Um, and you, you nailed it right on the head when you said an overflowing amount of compassion that suddenly overtook you. If you break that down for a minute, think about that, that would be like saying, you know, you, you grab a barbell and you lift weights every single day and then suddenly have the ability to feel the faintest feather on your calluses of your hand that are so built up, it would be impossible. But yet you were able to achieve that. That is incredible. I know one of my, um, you know, I guess you could call them celebrity mentors, but one of my celebrity mentors is Tim Ferriss, and he has been for a long time. Tim, I know, is very pro the use of, of psychedelics for a variety of reasons. In fact, he funds a great number of studies himself, along with others, and he invests in a lot of companies that are really trying to bring that type of medicine forward. And he says the exact same thing. It is a medicine. It is not a, a drug. I mean, I I laugh to a point because we live in a world today where when there's a political reason, everyone suddenly worries or thinks about what is in a shot, a pill, whatever it is, right? When politics and emotion are behind it, everybody cares. The part that no one's talking about are all the other drugs, the other shots, the other pills that are prescribed on a daily basis. Nobody questions what's in them. Nobody questions how they work, if they work, the effect that it has on your body. But yet we question things like in your case where, oh, this is a magic mushroom. It's psychedelic. It's highly addictive. It's, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it seems to be in today's world, it, it takes politics in order for anybody to care about what could or could not have a negative or positive effect on someone. Kudos for you to be able to not only initiate that journey, but endure the journey. Because although it's a journey of healing, I would imagine it's a difficult journey. I mean, you think of a journey of healing, you're like, oh, the flowers are great and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm quite sure it's not that way. Plant medicines are often viewed as those unconventional tools for healing. But in your case, it really contributed to your recovery because PTSD is a challenging condition to overcome. But I also heard you say something 
beyond just the healing. And that's a part I really would love to dive into next because it sounded like you began a process of being able to live fearlessly and really transmuting, being able to transmute fear seemed to be big aspects of your story. How do you suggest for other individuals that are facing trauma or fear to apply some of the principles that you've gone through on their own healing journeys? Yeah, that's a great point. I would say what you're going through currently with unresolved trauma, and if you're listening to this and you're applying it to your own life, you're already like halfway there. So just admitting that, you know, it's having an effect on you is, is key. But so those subtle little things, those differences that it's having in the way you're showing up with your family and in your personal interactions, like it's, it's having a negative effect on you and it's really limiting you in terms of how your life is going because we create our reality with our thoughts first and then our words and then our actions. And so when you're, when you're being affected by trauma, your thoughts aren't going to be as clear or positive as they can be. So what I'm getting at is what you're currently doing and the suffering that you're going through is way worse than confronting your trauma head on and just, just going in and, and dealing with it actually dealing with the root cause stuff and not band-aid, not like, you know, take this antidepressant or anti-anxiety and like, don't get me wrong, the doctors all tried to, or not tried to, but like offered those options to me. And for me, I just, I was like, no, I'm, I'm staying with, well, without any pharmaceutical and like, it's gotta be nature for me. And so I'm, and I'm not, I don't have any judgment towards anyone that, that is taking any sort of a pharmaceutical at all because everyone's situation is so different. But at the same time, for me, it was just like, no, like I just need to deal with this head on. And then, so I just got to a point where I just had this like uh, openness. I think it was getting to that real rock bottom point in, in December where I was just like, what, like. I've been doing this for a year and a half with traditional therapies and I'm not getting any better. Like, and then to like WCP was really pushing me hard to go back to work. And I was just at a real low point. And that's what it took for me to be like, okay, like it's time to do something different. It's time to go in and face these things head on and full force. And so, and that's the beautiful thing about psilocybin specifically is that it well, alters your state of consciousness. So dealing with your hard stuff is actually not as hard as you would think. And especially if you're open and ready to do that work, you know, pre-journey and have your intentions written out and all the things and setting up that sacred space and having the right situation in terms of someone like a professional with you and all of the things. It's like, yeah, it's just that openness is huge. And I've heard subsequently from different practitioners who do psychedelic assisted therapies that my story is quite unusual that I was able to go from that diagnosis to no diagnosis with one session. And I, I think this is only my opinion, but I think it was a combination of my just complete openness and willingness and just wanting to do that work. And also I think there's a huge component in the energy I put into those plants as they were growing with the sacred geometry and wish with the intentions I was putting into them energetically, I truly believe that was had a huge impact as well. So to, to kind of summarize, I would just say what you're currently dealing with unresolved trauma is worse than what you're going to experience to actually deal with your trauma. And I can only speak to my own experience, but I and I don't, I don't know how to describe it adequately because words don't do it justice, but it was, I don't, enjoyable is not the right word, but like it was almost enjoyable that day. Like the, with the, with the altered state of consciousness to go into my darkest places that I would never go to. Otherwise I would like absolutely just like force them back down. Like I was just like, just like floated in there. Like, all right, let's do this. And so it, yeah, again, it was 
yeah, enjoyable is not the right word, but it was just a beautiful experience. And I think it's a combination of all those factors I've described that, that led to that beautiful experience for me. Let me ask, because I'm very curious, you relied upon plant-based medicine to be able to move forward. Is there an interesting connection to plants and nature? Because your connection with plants didn't end in your healing journey. You continued that connection in the plant-based world with your company, Flow State Designs. Where do you think that that initially came from? Yeah, it's no coincidence again, because there's no such thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so early in, in 2020, so with that, you know, the meditation and the gut reset and then all the things. So that was when Flow State Designs came to me as an idea was right early days of, of January of that year. And so I think it's, yeah, there, it's just, it's wild to look at it now and, and you've nailed it. Like that commonality between the plant-based healing and then also now the plant-based fibers that I use in the clothing and the intention that I put into the clothing. So the yeah, the clothing we're making is it was made in Canada. It's sewn in Calgary, Alberta. It's made with hemp and organic cotton. Hemp is a an amazing fiber for well textiles, clothing, absolutely, but so many other purposes too, from food to construction to like hemp based plastics. It's it's an amazing amazing product, and it has benefits for the both the people wearing it in the clothing uh, situation. In terms of it not being, you know, it's thermoregulating and it's UV protectant and it's antimicrobial and antifungal. So it doesn't smell, it doesn't grow bacteria and have all that stinkiness that synthetic fibers do. But it also has benefits for the the planet and the way it grows and with deep root system and as a rotational crop, it actually regenerates the soil and it uses less water and you don't need all the nasty chemicals and like there's just so many benefits for both people and the planet. And so, yeah, it's crazy, but um, it's definitely, yeah, use plants to heal myself. And now I'm making clothing out of plants that's with the intention to just go away from the fast fashion model where it's just like maximum profit at the expense of both people and the planet in terms of where it's sewn and, you know, the materials and all the things. It's just all about money at the end of the day and just completely flipping that on its head and this is like very much slow fashion what i'm doing and just very intentional from where it's made to the fibers to even in the care and content label of every one of our shirts i have a small like a tiny little piece of clear quartz crystal that i have sewn into the label that i've sent positive energies of grace and abundance and flow and gratefulness and a bunch of positive energies so it's just yeah, it's all very intentional and very much the opposite of what you're seeing in the big box stores currently. Literally sounds like you are infusing consciousness into your clothing. That's incredible. I love that. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I love it too. Like that, just the energy part of it. I've touched on it numerous times throughout this, uh, throughout our chat here. And it's like, it's such a big part of my life. And now, I'm able to do that even with a, you know, a physical product and people, even if they're not into this stuff, right. They don't care that it's got a quartz crystal or whatever in it. It's like, right. it doesn't even matter that they don't care. Right. It's still like, that's still there and it's still, everything is energy and they're still getting it, whether they believe it or not. I understand what you went through from a post-traumatic stress syndrome. Time is very difficult. But now you're on a road of personal growth, but you're also on a road of entrepreneurship, which can be a very difficult road as well. What are some of the personal practices or even rituals or things that you're doing now that help you stay aligned, help you stay focused and really empowered on the journey that you're continuing? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's no joke for sure. Uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, it's, uh, I spent well my entire life, you know, just like set paycheck on this day and it's this amount. And like, now that's like out the window. Right. So there's definitely a lot of ups and downs, but again, just coming back to, to my whole personality in terms of embracing a challenge and, and really stepping up to that, I find is really empowering. So the practices that I currently employ are, um, so I, I get up 
early. I set an alarm every morning, not as early as you, very much admittedly. Um, but I would, I aspire to be like you someday. Um, and (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. And for me, it's, I I need to move my body. So whatever that looks like, whether it's a, a run or a workout or, and even just getting out into nature is huge for me being surrounded by trees and nature. And even if it's just a walk, it's, that's huge for me. Um, breath work. I've recently discovered breath work, which has been amazing. And I've been able to have experiences with just my breath alone that are as intense as my hero journey psilocybin experiences. Wow. With the right, so we're my wife and I are actually doing, it's called 9D breath work. So it's nine dimensions to the sound. So you wear a headset. And so there's like, there's all sorts of things going on in the background while you're doing breath work. And it's amazing. There's, you can deal with all sorts of trauma in a 45 minute to an hour and a bit breath work session. So that's another practice that I really enjoy. I do the cold shower, you know, at the end of my shower, I crank her cold and suck it up for for as long as I can kind of thing, some conscious breaths in there. Um, so those are kind of, those are my, my big ones that kind of keep me, keep me going. And and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm definitely a work in progress. I have my up days and down days and I still have all sorts of work to do on myself. But that day I was able to free myself from the effects that trauma was playing and unresolved trauma for my career specifically was playing in my day-to-day life. And so the way I looked at it was like, I was putting energy into pushing it down, like conscious, like real life force energy into keeping that down. And now I've just, I've liberated all of that because I don't have to do it. I can be reminded of my, those hard calls. And of course they remain as memories. Like it's not like they disappear, of course, but they don't hold an emotional charge over me anymore. I can remember them and revisit them and just move on with my day. And I'm not having to put that energy into keeping them down. So I've just, I've liberated a ton of energy to put into positive things like my brand and this breath work and different things. And I I call it post-traumatic growth because that's exactly what it is for me. Well, for people that generally do listen to this podcast, I'm sure they picked up on what I just picked up. The three most successful ways or the three most powerful ways that a human being can boost their own dopamine levels are the following. Number one, get outside, morning walk, sunshine, nature. Number two, exercise. Number three, ice baths, cold therapy. So you are incorporating all three into your morning right out of the gate, uh, which is just setting you up for a perfect situation. Um, and there's such a difference between the dopamine that is released uh, due to natural things like that versus the dopamine that winds up getting released from things like social media, alcohol, um, illicit drugs, gambling, chocolate even. So I totally understand how you're moving forward on your path. And that's incredible. Tell me a little more though about flow state designs. What are your visions? What are the aspirations for the company in the future? And how do they align with your mission of really conscious living and empowerment? Yeah, no, for sure. They're definitely, they're intertwined for sure. And so my primary mission right now is what we're doing right now. And that's sharing my story and to just give people an example of a possibility it's certainly not for everyone. Psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy and all that isn't for everyone. And I totally get that. But it has potential, like I mentioned, to help so many people, both inside law enforcement and just in the general population. And so, yeah, my mission is to share my story as far and wide as I can to to give people, I guess, hope that they don't have to suffer with this. Like there are there are legitimate options that you can go in and and actually deal with root cause stuff and the benefits in your life are going to be just amazing. And so that's number one. And so tie that into what I'm doing with the clothing brand. So it's producing yeah, intentional clothing with, with all of the energies, like I talked about and all the positive things that that come with that. And then trying to find a way to, to give back and as well. And so I'm looking for a way I'm, I'm doing like the, you know, tree planting with every purchase, which is it's cool and it's doing something, but it doesn't speak to my heart. 
So I'm trying to find an aligned charity or a setup where I can give back a portion of every shirt sale to, to actually getting people in a psychedelic therapy, let's say, or into a breathwork session or into these different things and be able to fund that for people. And so that's definitely top of mind right now is trying to figure out a way to, to do that effectively and to actually help someone. There's so many of these charities and whatnot that are just like, it's so much red tape and the money that you're putting in maybe aren't actually going towards helping people. And so I want the money to actually go towards people and building people up and, and letting them, allowing them to process stuff that otherwise wouldn't have been processed and would just hold them back in their lives. So that's kind of a brief overview of sort of my vision on that front. And then as far as the clothing goes, I have, yeah, right now it's men's t-shirts, but I'm actively working on a woman's pattern, women's specific pattern with the same fabric. And I have plans for a full line. Absolutely. Going forward. I love the design portion of it and coming up with unique ways that the clothing fits and performs and, and different things. And um, that's, right up my alley for sure. So it's, uh, it's cool that I mentioned prior to policing, I was interested in design, right. And on the, you know, more vehicle side, but, uh, now I'm able to use those skills that I kind of have to, to an attention to detail to put into clothing and that I get to see something physical on people, which is just the coolest thing ever, because in policing, as you can imagine, you never have anything at the end of your day that you can like touch or see or like hold on to as something that has happened because of your work. It's all very intangible. And then a lot of it, you know, you put a year into an investigation and then it gets, you know, withdrawn at court like two years later because it took two years to get to court, even though it's not the police's fault. Anyways, so right. now I'm able to physically have something at the end of the day that I can like see. And my, some of my biggest joys are yeah, seeing people wearing my clothing and, and then hearing about the benefits that they're feeling from it. So that's, it's kind of what I got going on. And as flow state designs, do you ship internationally? Where are you able to ship to now? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, definitely North America. That's about as far as I've gone so far. I've shipped some to Mexico. That was a bit of a nightmare, but uh, North America for sure is no problem. And uh, yeah, it's all available at, uh, on our website, which is flowstatedesigns.ca. And the social media and all that's under Flow State Designs as well. We can uh, put that in the show notes if that works for you. And yeah, it's just something that I just feel just feels good. And right now I'm at a point in my life where I do things that feel good in my body. And this just feels good. So I'm moving forward with it. As we start to wind down, I always ask the same two questions as we tend to close uh, our podcast episodes. During your journey, has there been any book, podcast, anything at all that has really helped guide you in your journey to be able to help you to become the person that you are today? Yeah, there's, there's been definitely, I, yeah, there's been a few for sure. I've really leaned on, um, and I've definitely touched on it, but the more of the spiritual side of things has been, has been big for me. And so Aubrey Marcus has been uh, someone that, that I've listened to a lot. Um, and then um, there's Paul Check as well. He's been really influential as well. Just his views on, on the body and how it all works and together and all of that. So those would be the two that, that really, they really come to mind that have kind of kept me, kept me moving forward in some of those, yeah, a little bit darker times for sure. And after everything that you've been through, what mantra do you live by today that you could share with our listeners for a source of inspiration? I would say, be the light that you want to see in the world. I love that. That's fantastic. Nick, this has been a fantastic conversation. For anyone that'd like to know more about you, your story, or Flow State Designs, how do people find you? Yeah, so the website, of course, I just mentioned, flowstatedesigns.ca. Um, and then, yeah, all the social media, Instagram and TikTok are probably the the two that I'm most active on. So really trying to embrace my uh, my inner child there with the TikTok stuff. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, those would be the two main ones for sure. But I'm on I'm on the majority of them. Absolutely. 
And for all the listeners, as always, all of Nick's links will be in the podcast description. So make sure you check them out. I know I will absolutely be ordering a shirt this evening and I cannot wait to get it. So I'm just happy that you shipped to North America because I can't wait to, uh, to order one and get one in New Jersey. Nick, this has been fantastic. Uh, first off, kudos for you. And again, as I started off this podcast, thank you for everything that you've done on the law enforcement side. Uh, but I'm, now that I know a little bit more about you, I'm going to say thank you as well for the fact that you're continuing your journey, sharing this journey with others, not only through spoken word and, and podcasts like this, but also through your clothing line. I, I think, as I said before, you are, you know, literally infusing a state of consciousness into the clothing line. And I absolutely love that. I can't thank you enough for your time, Nick. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Great. Noah. thank you very much for having me and giving me this time and the platform to share my story and to hopefully to reach more people and to show people that there are possibilities outside of traditional therapies that can really, really help and transform people's lives. And, and then when we transform our own lives, we also transform the collective, right? We we're all part of the collective consciousness. And as that continues to rise, these tools, psychedelics and breath work and, and all the cold plunging and all the things that you described are all a huge part of that and getting that, that collective rising, which is exactly what's happening right now. And I'm here for it. So let's do it. I love that. Nick, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, don't forget to go to flowstatedesigns.ca to grab your t-shirt, 20% off with the code MINDFIT20 at checkout. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Stay driven, everyone, and until next time.